So Isaiah chapter 9, or page 573. We are in the third week of Advent, and most of us, I think, know the definition of Advent. It's the four weeks leading up to Christmas. But I wonder how many of us practice Advent. So Advent is meant to be practiced. A time when we purposefully practice waiting. A time when we purposefully practice restraint. A time in which we purposefully practice lament. We give voice to the things that are going on in this world and in our world that are not right. That only Jesus can fix. And so we wait for him to fix it. That's what Advent means to practice. And the good news is, well, the first, the bad news is everything in our cultural uh, moment right now is saying, do not do those things, especially during these weeks. If anything, crowd out the sorrow in your life with spending and with cheer. And the church sort of does this conspiratorial thing every single year around this time where we say no to that. We say, no, there's four weeks actually where we lament, where we name the things that are broken and therefore wait on the Lord. And the good news is we have a lot of help from Christians across the ages in this practice. And so in the ancient church, as early as the 400s, Christians would practice Advent with these prayers. They were called O antiphons or O prayers. And they would often pray them in the days leading up to Christmas morning. And each prayer highlighted a different Old Testament name of the Messiah, of the yet-to-be-appeared Messiah. Titles like, O Root of Jesse. O Key of David, they would pray. O Emmanuel. And many of us, you're probably familiar with this, with the hymn that the church sings, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Well, that is from those ancient prayers. And so if you've been with us, you know this. But if you're visiting, what we're doing during Advent is we're practicing Advent through the help of these ancient prayers. More importantly, the scripture behind them. And so last week we looked at the prayer, O Day Spring. And that took us to Isaiah 9 and Luke chapter 2. This morning we're going to be looking at the prayer entitled, O King of Nations. O King of Nations. And in it, Jesus is depicted as a long-awaited King of all kings after a long season of bad leadership. And behind this prayer are the promises of God through Isaiah in chapter 9, which we have opened. And so let's take a look, starting in verse 1. This is God's Word. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time... He brought into contempt the land of Nebulun and the land of Neptali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. As they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. 
For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For unto us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Lord, would the words of my mouth and would the meditation of all of our hearts here this morning be pleasing and acceptable to you. You are our rock and our redeemer. And Lord, we pray and we ask and we beg that the Holy Spirit, your Holy Spirit, would would embolden me, open our eyes, open our hearts to Jesus. We want to encounter him. And it's in his prayer, and it's in his name we pray, Amen. So when I was a kid, uh, I didn't watch scary movies. I didn't even like to watch dramatic movies. Basically, if there was any conflict in the movie, I was out. Which is why whenever my wife Josie she asks if I've seen any of the classic movies of the '90s, I always disappoint her with my answer. She's always like, "Did you watch any movie?" <laughs> It's still basically true. I don't like depictions of what is broken and evil in this world. I like, I'd like. i rather fast forward or squint my eyes. Or if I'm reading, I'm tempted to skim through the difficult passages. And so it's no surprise to learn that this is also true of me in life. I'd rather squint through life. I'd rather pretend that life is better than it actually is. I'd rather pretend that life is easier than it actually is. I think it's probably fair to say, to some extent, we all tend to squint through life. We all tend to squint through suffering. All tend to squint through sin and squint at evil in this world. It's like, it's like driving by the wreck on the side of the highway. If you do look, you're not looking closely. It's just too hard. And that's how... Many of us live life, we squint through it. I recently read about the role of emotions in the Christian life, especially how we in the church tend to numb down our emotions. And these authors write, perhaps a better explanation for why it's so difficult to feel our feelings is that all emotion, positive or negative, opens the door to the nature of reality. All of us prefer to avoid pain, but even more, we want escape from reality. And emotion tends to propel us into the tragic recognition that we are not home. We are not home. The world is not the way it's supposed to be. And we would rather escape that truth. We often think this is the pathway to wholeness or the pathway to joy. But the Bible tells a different story. The Bible tells us that we can have joy or at least the hope of joy. Even as we open our eyes to reality. 
In the passage we just read, the Bible tells us, well, in the passage that we just read, Isaiah opens our eyes. That's what prophets do. Prophets open our eyelids and they tape them open, like the Tom and Jerry cartoon. They just tape them open. And they give us the unvarnished truth about sin, about suffering, about evil. But they also give us the unvarnished truth about how God is going to make all those things right. Prophets give the good news and the bad news. So look how Isaiah does this this morning. He says, open your eyes and look at reality. See the anguish and the gloom. If you look at verse 22, anguish and gloom characterized these nations. Things are not right about Israel. Assyria, this, this kingdom, Assyria was breathing down their neck the time Isaiah was writing this. Because of sin and because of evil leadership in God's house. And he's saying, open your eyes to it. He's not hiding it. But when you open your eyes, Isaiah says, that is not all you are going to see. Living life with your eyes wide open also enables you to see the promises of God more clearly. And this is why we're given a future vision of deep joy in verses 3 through 4. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. See, the prophets are 100% realistic and they are 100% hopeful. They open our eyes like a camera setting aperture, like on absolutely widest angle to the full extremity of suffering and evil in our life and also the extremity of how God is going to make that right. And the hope we can have in God in those exact areas. Only the Bible tells us that we can open our eyes fully to sorrow because God will make things right. In fact, uh, this is the entire argument of the biblical book Ecclesiastes, one of my favorite books in the Bible. In it, Solomon, or Koholeth as he's called, is perfectly at home with people who point out the injustice of the world. He's perfectly at home with people who point out how the world is just absolutely impossible sometimes, if not most of the time. He's perfectly at home with people who would point out how broken this world is. But there's one critical difference between Solomon and these folks that he's comfortable with. The very last part of the book, the very last line, God is coming back to set these things right. And it's that future hope that enables him and all of the readers to enjoy the actual gifts that are in front of them in this broken world. Uh, Wendell Berry, one of my favorites, he, in a brilliant poem called The Mad Farmer Liberation Front, writes, Be joyful, though you have considered all the facts. Be joyful, though you have considered all the facts. Berry is ripping off Ecclesiastes. He owes Isaiah some royalties. (laughs) Why? Because Isaiah is saying to Israel, you can have hope, even though you've considered all the facts. How is this possible? Well, the answer is unpacked in our passage, but summarized in verse 7, the very last line, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. We can have hope because God will set things right. 
He will make things right. And how does he do this? Well, again, this passage unpacks it and he shows us that he will make things right with three things. His divine reversal, his divine leadership, and his divine desire. And let's just take a look at each of those. God will make things right with his divine reversal. It's really a promise of divine reversal. Isaiah reminds us time and time again throughout his writings and his ministry. That this is how God works. Reversals. God exalts the valleys. He brings low the mountains. He makes the crooked straight. He takes the rough places and makes them smooth. Things are, in other words, according to the word of God, in this world, upside down. And over and over and over again, we accept the realities of our world as right side up. And we make peace. One of the ministries of the prophets is to always say, no, things are upside down and only God will turn things right side up. Though you dare accept what is upside down as right side up. Every time I go to a funeral and the pastor conveys the idea that death is a normal, cyclical part of life, I rage. It's not right. It's not the way it's supposed to be. It's upside down. And only God can turn it right side up. Or abuse. Or cancer. These aren't just things that we grow accustomed to. So Isaiah, he opens our eyes to the darkness in this passage of of war, the darkness of the spiritual abuse of King Ahaz. The spiritual idolatry of God's people. And then he says, it's not going to be this way always. God is going to reverse it. And so we'll just take a few examples. In verses 1 through 2, we learn that the land of Nebulun and the land of Neptali, if you cast your eyes to the text, are in contempt and anguish. These are the northernmost settlements of Israel, okay? And this means that they are oftentimes the first to be invaded by aggressors. It's exactly what happened in the case of Assyria. They were indeed the first to be invaded by Assyria and to be taken by Assyria. And yet Isaiah assures us that there will be a day when God reverses this reality. He will make glorious this land. A complete reversal. And we read about this reversal. Actually, Matthew, the gospel writer, talks about this reversal in his fourth chapter. Verse 12, he says, Now, when he had heard that John had been arrested, the Baptist, John the Baptist, he withdrew into Galilee. Jesus did. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. Jesus goes to Zebulun and Naphtali first. Matthew continues, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, what we're reading this morning, might be fulfilled. Amen. And listen. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Think about this real quick. The most oppressed people in this land, the most despised. Jesus enters first. First. 
Isn't that the heart of God? He identifies with the most oppressed. He blesses the last in line, not the first in line. Those from the nations, Galilee of the nations. Why was it called Galilee of the nations or Galilee of the Gentiles? Because it was northernmost, it often had the most national, international travel through it. And therefore, it was the most international place. Does it surprise you that it's the heart of God in Jesus to go there first to the furthest margins of life? It's those who Jesus welcomes first. This is a complete reversal. Many years ago when I was dating Josie, and many of you know this story. I drove from Miami University, where I was a student, to Columbus, Ohio, where Josie was a student, uh, to drive her to Indiana, I know that's convoluted, uh, to visit my family. Now, this was before Siri and GPS and all the rest, okay? We had MapQuest, but I was too cool for MapQuest. <laughs> and so about one hour into our drive, you know the story, some of you, after some rich conversation, right? I see the exit sign for Wheeling, West Virginia. <laughs> now, West Virginia is this way, and Indiana is this way. For you guys. <laughs> I was going in the complete opposite direction, and what I needed to do was swallow my pride and actually turn the car in the exact opposite direction. I couldn't just tweak the direction. I couldn't just sort of verge a little bit to the left or a little bit to the right. I had to do a complete reversal. And that's what God is going to do. God will not just tweak the way of the world. That's how we approach the world, though. We just need a little tweak. We need a little adjustment. He reverses it. He's going to visit the most depressed area first, as it says. And how is he going to do this? Well, again, not as you would expect. In a complete reversal, we see that he comes to us with this reversal, verse 6, through the birth of a child. God is going to reverse all things, not with a powerful monarch figure, but with a helpless baby. Who needs his diaper changed by his caretakers. If that is not a reversal, I do not know what is. So Jesus is this reversal. And if you know anything about his ministry, his ministry was a a ministry of reversals. And this is God in flesh. Setting in motion the greatest reversal of all. God making things right. Taking what is upside down and turning it right side up. But again, we settle. We settle for sin and brokenness and we sort of say, say la vie, don't we? We just sort of say, this is the way it is. But God rages against all that is broken about this world. He rages against it. He doesn't want it to be and he reverses it. God will make things right. 
with his reversal. He also makes things right with his leadership. So the second way he will do this is with his own divine leadership. The Bible says, if you take a big sort of 50,000 foot look at what the scripture story says, is that we were called to rule the world in the way that God rules. In the same manner as God, wisely and with wisdom, we, we are meant to rule the world well, and we are meant to rule the world worshipfully. But ever since our sin in the garden, we have been destroying this world and the people in it with our terrible leadership. That's just the reality. So much so that in Romans, we learn that creation itself is groaning. It's like the, my, my, my vegetable garden groans because I'm terrible and neglectful of it. And that's the truth. It's terrible. My vegetable garden is terrible. Actually, it's no more. And even, I just sort of forgot it. But that's the picture that the scriptures say is that is that the world is groaning because of our poor leadership. Ahaz, this king, is just the latest example of abusive leaders in the Old Testament. And so Isaiah is telling God's people that the day is coming when God himself is coming to rule. And he's going to, uh, it says here, the government or the responsibility of the rule will rest on his shoulders. And nothing short of this ruling, this king, will make things right. And then Isaiah paints a picture of this coming king with four names. The government shall be upon his shoulder, it says in verse 6, and his name shall be called. And he gives four names. Now in those days, names meant a lot more than they mean to us. Names conveyed something about the person. So let's look at each. Wonderful counselor. This king, this coming king is a wonderful counselor. Wonderful is a watered down word today. Oh, that's wonderful. Oh, isn't that wonderful? It means, in the Hebrew, full of wonders. The king will do wonders. This king will do miracles. And everything he does will be Wise, He's a wonderful or a full of wonder counselor. It'll be wise and it'll bring life to dead and broken things. This is why we go to counselors or we receive counseling. For wisdom and for growth. And we're at a dead end and we need someone to speak into it. Well, God will make things right with his wonderful counsel. This king is a mighty God. So right away we know that this leader is not a mere human. There's a mystery here. How does this king be born and also be God? Well, we know Jesus is fully God and fully man. This leader must be divine. No leader in the Old Testament is given this title, mighty. You would expect maybe Moses, maybe David, maybe Abraham, maybe Gideon, somebody. No, nobody. Only one, and that's God. So this king is divine, and he will make things right. Only he can. This king is an everlasting father, which is an amazing biblical paradox. If you think about it, unto you a child is born, and his name shall be called everlasting father. But that doesn't make sense. Unless this baby is eternal. And unless this baby is going to lead like a good dad. 
not abusively or authoritarianly. This divine leadership is fatherly. And then the Prince of Peace. This king is a Prince of Peace. When leadership is placed on his shoulders... Everything grows and unfurls into its potential and its beauty, like it's meant to. Remember chapter 11 of Isaiah? We looked at this on the first week of Advent. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. And what we discovered when we explored this amazing picture is that when Jesus leads, he restores Eden. The groaning creation stops groaning under King Jesus's leadership when it's upon his shoulders. Isaiah wants us to know and believe that this good state of affairs can only come from this king. And Isaiah, more than that, would say that when this good state of affairs comes from this king, it will only increase. Verse 7, the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. As one commentator says, we will never say or will want to say about this king, stop, just stop. We will never say stop. There will never be a moment where you say stop about this good king's leadership. It just keeps going and going and going. It will only increase. Now, some of you know this, but I am listening nonstop to Handel's Messiah. Okay? Let me just recommend this piece of art to you if you've not engaged it already. I'm late to the party, guys. This thing is amazing. Well, anyway, Handel, who wrote this, he gets this. He gets this. What I'm talking about right now, he gets this. In fact, he embeds this increasing level of, 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 gov, of good government. He embeds it into his music. It's called tone painting. When you actually, with music, create uh, an idea or a picture, it's a tone painting. And so what he does in his writing is that famous Hallelujah Chorus, which you all probably know about, he wrote that to be perpetual. You could sing, and he shall reign forever and ever, forever and ever. You could. The way it's designed, the way that he wrote it, is sort of like spiraling around and around and around, kind of like row, row, row your boat. It just can go. Or the song, this, and this song will never end. And it's, you know that it's just a, it's a round. That's what it's called. It's a round. And it's just, this is what he did. It spirals around, and we could sing it forever. But it's not just perpetual. Handel's amazing. It's not just perpetual or unchanging. It actually elevates. So King of Kings in this exact moment goes higher and higher and higher. And just when you think it can't go higher, the boys choir kicks in. (laughs) And it goes higher and higher and higher. And you want it to go higher and higher and higher. And then you just want it to repeat and go higher again. It's cyclical, but it's not unchanging. And that's exactly, he gets this passage. The government of Jesus, the rule of Jesus is something that we will never want to stop. And will only get better and better and better and better. Think about this for a second. God is eternal or infinite. 
We are finite. And we will always be finite. And some of us have the idea, the mistaken idea, that when we see Jesus face to face, when the new heavens and new earth come, we will somehow like be infinite. And our finiteness, our creatureliness, sort of gets elevated to like godness or something. But that's not right. Actually, we remain finite forever. And so if God is infinite and we are finite, okay, think about this. Let your brain explode with me for a second. Then that means that we will always be more and more and more amazed by King Jesus. There will be aspects about him that we will always grow into and learn about. He will never be exhausted. Our worship will never be exhausted. Our affections will never burn out on him. God will make things right with his leadership. And then finally, God will make things right with his divine passion. So the real reason that we can have hope despite all the evidence is that all of this hangs on God's doing, not our own. Verse 7, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do all of this. Now, the word for zeal is literally red in the face. God is not complacent about this vision. He's passionate. He's red in the face, committed to making all things right. He's red in the face, committed to justice where there is injustice. He is red in the face, committed to righteousness where there is unrighteousness. God is not aloof about the brokenness of your world and this world. He's not aloof to it. He's red in the face about it. He's not some divine watchmaker who sort of watches the world unfold. That's not who God is depicted for us in the Bible. Jesus, again, God in flesh, embodies this zeal when he braids the whip at the temple. Why? Against the religious abusers who are blocking the poor and the outsiders in the worship of God. Jesus, again, who embodies this zeal, shows red in the face zeal when his friend Lazarus dies. When he looks at Jerusalem and sees that they are sheep without a shepherd, he gets red in the face zealous. When he goes to Calvary, it's a zeal that takes him there. On Calvary, God in flesh defeats sin, defeats Satan. And all that is wrong with the world, it's his zeal that does it, not us. And this is a one-way rescue. What's the text say? A son is given, not earned. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he's the German Christian pastor and theologian who died at the hands of the Nazi regime because he stood against Hitler. He says this, a prison cell in which one waits, and he would know, a prison cell in which one waits, hopes, does various unessential things, and is completely dependent on the fact that the door of freedom has to be opened from the outside, is not a bad picture of admin at all. Every promise in this vision is God's doing. And that is actually the good news. 
If it were up to us, we would not carry this through, would we? In our world, it's the increase of tyranny. But God will bring peace. He will bring justice. And so we can hope because God will do it. So let me just ask you here. In this Advent, I think an important part of what it means to practice Advent is to continually ask your heart with honesty, where is my hope? Who is my hope? What is my hope? And as Isaiah invites you to open your eyes to brokenness, which is a scary thing to do, are you also opening your eyes to this child king? Jesus. I mean, John, the apostle, he surely is referencing this promise when he tells us that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that we may not perish but have eternal life. So let me just ask you, are you receiving this given son? Only Jesus is the reason that you can have hope despite all the evidence. One pastor, he writes this, he says about King Jesus, he is a king of the most unparalleled clemency and grace. Never was any kingdom ruled by a government so mild and gentle and gracious. He is exceedingly gracious in the manner of his ruling his people by sweetly and powerfully influencing their hearts by his grace, not governing them against the wills, but powerfully inclining their wills. So I think about this. Jesus is king. You must trust him. He is king. You must trust him. But he's wonderful counselor. Don't you want to trust him? So Jesus is king. You must obey him. But he's a mighty God. Don't you want to obey him? Jesus is king, so you must love him. But he is an everlasting father. So don't you want to love him? Jesus is king, so you must be loyal to him. But he is the prince of peace. Don't you want to be loyal to him? He's the only king who will usher in peace. So, I'll leave you with a challenge. Read a gospel. Read a gospel account. Read a gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Just work through it. And then remember, as you read, this is what God's rule looks like. Okay? Just do that. I challenge you to do that. And he right, he says, Jesus is what God looks like when God is running things. So lay down your arms, okay, and receive him. Lord, we ask that you would indeed open our eyes uh, with the help of the prophet Isaiah to the not rightness of this world. And yet would you, with those same open eyes, give us a clear picture of how you will make things right. Jesus did indeed come to inaugurate, to, to, to begin this great process. He has defeated all our enemies and yours. He's defeated sin and Satan once and for all. He is alive 
we are not dead in our sins, and we are not consigned to eternal death, all who are trusting in him. And so when he comes back, he will again usher in a, a, a correction, a reversal of all that is broken about this world, about our bodies, about our stories. Until that day, we wait and we receive. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.